0: Our mission, we're about helping people find and follow Jesus. If you got one of those bulletins when you came in, if you could take it out and fill it out and tear it off and just drop it in the offering plate at the end of of church service, that would be really helpful. Great way for you to communicate what's going on in your life to me as your pastor. Uh, We're going to continue our series, and this is through the New Testament book of Acts. We've been calling this the action... Of the church, So if you brought your Bibles, if you could open to Acts chapter 21, we're going to look at verses 1 through 14 this morning. And I'm calling this sermon, How to Handle Suffering. I heard a story, and this was a story about a, a man who was a Maasai warrior. And Maasai, it's a tribe in Africa, and his name was Joseph. There was one day when Joseph was walking down this hot, dry, dusty African road, and he met somebody. This man shared the gospel of of Jesus Christ with him. And right then and right there, the the gospel transformed Joseph's heart and mind, and he got saved. And, And he was filled with such awe and wonder and joy, the very first thing that he wanted to do, he wanted to go back to his village, and he wanted to share the gospel with those that were in his tribe. And so Joseph gets there, and he begins going door to door, and he's telling everybody about the cross of Jesus Christ. How God took on flesh and He came to this earth and He went to the cross for sinners, for you and I to die for what we have done. And Joseph was expecting their faces to light up with joy, just like his did. But unfortunately, that wasn't the case. Um, to his amazement, they didn't only just not feel, their heart was not filled with joy, but they became violent at this message. And the men of the village grabbed him and they held him to the ground and the women took twisted barbed wire and they began to beat Joseph. And eventually they drug him out of the village and they threw him the brush and they left him to die. But somehow Joseph managed to crawl to a water hole and it was there for days as he's passing in and out of consciousness until eventually his strength began to, to come back to him. And he wondered about the reaction that he received about preaching the gospel message to those that he loved. And so he figured, you know, he said, I must have said something wrong, or maybe I presented it wrong. I left something out. So he rehearsed the message like like how he first heard it, and he goes back to his tribe, and and he goes into the, the middle of the huts, and he says, Jesus died for you that you might find forgiveness and come to know the living God. And again, the men came out of the village and they grabbed him and held him to the ground. As again, the women began to beat him with barbed wire. And again, they drug him out of the village and they left him to die. Now, to survive the first beating, it was pretty remarkable. But to survive the second beating, that was a full-blown miracle. But again, after days, G, uh, Joseph woke and then he's bruised and scarred. And he was, he was just determined, I'm going to go back and I preach the gospel to these people I love. And he returned to the village, but this time he didn't even make it to the village. He was, he was greeted before he had a chance to, to make it into the village, before he even opened his mouth, and they, they beat him again for the third time. And he was speaking to him as he being held to the ground about Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of sins. And just before he passed out, the last thing he saw was the women begin to cry. And then he woke again, but this time he woke up in his own bed. The ones that were severely beating him were, were trying to save his life. And it turns out the entire village came to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. This is an account of a true evangelist. I have to think that is very similar to what the Apostle Paul always dreamed would happen to his people, the Jewish people. You see, Paul was a man that, that, that wanted nothing more than to see the Jewish people come to saving faith in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And I think that's one reason why the Apostle Paul, he's always going to the synagogues first, Even though he's called to preach to the Gentiles, he's only going to the the Jews because he wants his people to know Christ as their Savior. And yet he was willing to suffer immensely if that would cause people to come to know Christ. Well, today we're in Acts chapter 21. But to really set up what we're going to look at today, I want to back up to Acts chapter 20. I want to frame our discussion today. Maybe you know this, maybe you don't, but we are in the third missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. Paul, he's in Ephesus, and he's invested three years into these people, training them and and teaching them the the gospel. He says this in Acts chapter 20, verse 22. It says, And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and affliction awaits me. But I do not account my life as any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul... He, he's there in, in Ephesus. He's meeting with the leaders, and he says, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me. Maybe some of your, your Bible translations say bound by the Spirit. Remember, before Paul, the Apostle Paul, was a soul winner, before that, he was Saul of Tarsus, and he was a persecutor of a Christians. But then came the day he had a radical encounter with, with the living God, and it changed his eternal destiny, destiny. If we were to go back, all the way to back to Acts chapter 9, God tells a man named Ananias about what would happen to Paul in the future. Read Acts 9, verse 15. It says, But the Lord said to him, talk about Ananias, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before, to, uh, before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer. There's that word. For the sake of my name. Paul is going to suffer being a a follower of Jesus Christ. And now here we are towards the end of the book of Acts. And really we're seeing this play out for what is going to be the last time. Paul suffered greatly for for the name of God. Paul was heading back to Jerusalem. And again this is leading up to the last time he will suffer for Jesus. This is in a sense... The beginning of the end for Paul. Read in Acts twenty-one verse one. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came to, uh, by a street course to Cos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patra. And having found a ship, crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. And when we come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it uh, on them the, the left, leaving it on the left, we sail. Sailed to Syria and landed in Tyre. And from there the ship was unloaded its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, we were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. When our days were, were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on a bench, we prayed and sar- f- said farewell to, the, to one another, and went on the, board the ship, and they returned home. Verse 1, Luke uses the word parted, as the ESV says. Uh, the, the Greek word, it means to tear away. Okay? This is implying idea of trauma, that the Apostle Paul is, is, is feeling and experiencing trauma for leaving the people that he was, had been pouring his life into for three years. And the disciples at Tyre, it says, through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. The disciples are urging Paul not to go because everybody knows that when, when Paul gets to Jerusalem, there's guys there that want him dead. Okay, this isn't like, hey, they're kind of unhappy with Paul. No, they're going to murder Paul. And, and I think that's just wisdom. Where his friends are saying, hey, Paul, man, don't, don't, don't go to Jerusalem. I know you really want to go, but we don't want to see you die. Some theologians suggest that Paul was being disobedient in wanting to go to Jerusalem, but I don't think that's the case. Let me give you a couple reasons why I don't think Paul's being disobedient if we look at the whole of Scripture. Because we saw just a few chapters ago that Paul was very sensitive in leading the Holy Spirit. Um, when the Holy Spirit wanted, uh, didn't want Paul to go east and said west, and they, and they went, Paul very clearly obeys the instructions from God. But yet, Paul always had a desire to go to Jerusalem. Read in Acts 19, verse 21. It says, now after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Acacia and go to Jerusalem. Saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. And then Paul says it again in the text we just read in verse uh, number 22. It says, and now, befo- behold, I am going to Jerusalem. This is, this is Acts chapter 20. Constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and affliction awaits me. But I do not account my life as value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I that I received from the Lord to testify to the gospel of grace of God. So to those that would say Paul's being disobedient, I would say, Well, who's leading Paul? Who's directing Paul's steps? It's very clearly the Holy Spirit. So it's not that the Holy Spirit is telling Paul, hey, Paul, you go this. And then the Holy Spirit's telling the disciples something else. That's not how the Holy Spirit works. Okay? Paul is a man that is compelled by the mission. I think of it like this. In Lama's terms, Paul's going beast mode for the gospel. It's like he won't stop. It didn't matter if he gets beat up. Paul's going to preach Jesus. If, if Paul gets stoned, he's gonna preach Jesus. If he's left to die, he's gonna tell people about Jesus. Paul was willing to do anything to tell people about Christ. This is what Paul is doing. I think of it like this: you know, this is what allowed Paul to operate the way that he's operating. Paul just simply got his eyes off earthly stuff. You know, think about it. Before it was Saul of Tarsus. That's who this man was. Well, what was Saul of Tarsus about? He was about prestige. Paul, Saul of Tarsus is about being the next who's who of Judaism. But then he met Jesus. And everything changed. And that encounter that Saul of Tarsus had with the living God, it turned him his whole life in a 180 and set him in a totally new direction. Here's the application for us. We should do the same, right? Is, is that Jesus any any greater or less than the Jesus that came into our hearts and our lives and, and saved us? I no. So, now, I'm not telling you you have to become a pastor, a church planner like the Apostle Paul, but I'm not going to try to stop you if you do. But if we've had a personal encounter with God, with the living God, then we should be forever changed. Okay? God doesn't save anybody, so they'll just sit on the sidelines. God saves us so we will get in the game and we will live our lives for Him. By the way, Paul's going to make a Jerusalem a little spoiler alert for you. And he's going to stand in front of this council, the, the, the Sanhedrin. And, and let's look at what happens to Paul. It's found in Acts 23, verse 1. It says, And looking intently at the council, Paul says, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all, in all good conscience up to this day. You see, Paul was filled with such courage in the very face of suffering. These are the men that, that are going to kill Paul. He, he was he, he's, he's still doing what he's called to do up until this very moment. And what Paul's saying, he's saying, I'm a man of integrity, guys. I live my wife in a way that pleases God, and my conscience bears bears me guiltless because this is the way I've lived my life. And here's what I don't want any of us to miss, okay? Paul was filled with courage in the face of suffering, okay? And again, Paul wasn't stupid. I would say his mama raised no dummy. He knows what's going to come to him if he says what he said, And as believers, you and I, we need to live with the same level of boldness as the Apostle Paul. But in order to do this, here's what we need. We need the right perspective, right? Heaven should be on our hearts at all times. We need to get our eyes off this temporal, fleeting world. okay? And we need to get our eyes fixated on Jesus Christ. Paul had the courage uh, to know that when he gets to Jerusalem... He's going to be blasted with the wrath of these these men that are against the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he went anyways. We need that. You and I need that. Paul was a man of biblical conviction. Paul knew that the word of God, it was the ultimate authority. That's what Paul said, and you know what? That's what Paul lived. His life reflected it. But in order to have biblical convictions, I would say it's a product of two things. You ready? A biblical conviction comes from a commitment to Scripture as your ultimate authority. Okay? A biblical worldview, it shapes how you see the world through the lens of Scripture. But there's things that, that shape other people's, people's worldview, right? Okay? There's, there's things that come into our hearts and minds, and it really shapes the way we see the world. And one thing that shapes people's world is their opinion. If your opinion drives your worldview, then you'll be constantly worried about what other people think rather than what god thinks some people are just driven by their feelings and if the your feelings drive your worldviews well then your worldview is going to change day to day that's what the cults are built on biblical conviction the second thing it comes from it comes from a, from the courage to act on what you believe biblical conviction it it, it should drive us in the face of opposition That means if you place your confidence in God, you're not going to be shaken by any external circumstances. Paul was willing to live out his biblical convictions. Paul was willing to pay any price for the name of Jesus. And I guess, you know, there's people that talk a big game. They really do. So often we'll hear people today, they'll say, well, if somebody talks to me like that, and they'll play out what they say they'll do. Oh, if this happened to me, you know what I would do? And then they go on to tell us some story about what they would do in some situation. Well, here's the deal. Paul did it. Paul said it, and then Paul did it. He, he backed his, his, his life up. It wasn't just lip service for the apostle Paul. You know, What if I told you, I said, hey, if you show up to church tomorrow at 3 a.m., I'll give you a million dollars. Like, whoa, hey, that, that sounds cool. What if you really believed it? First, I don't have a million dollars. But pretend like you really thought I'm gonna give you a million dollars, you show up at 3 a.m. Let me tell you what you would do. Some of you would s- sleep in the parking lot. That's what happened. <laughs> if that wasn't, you'd have your alarm clock set, the coffee to go off, and you'd be here at 2:45, right? Why? Because you really believe it. You believe you're about to get a million dollars here at 3. And well, here's why I'm going with this. Jesus said some things that are pretty black and white, right? He he said things like not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father. Jesus said the Son of Man will send the angels. And they will gather out of his kingdom and cause the, all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. And throw them into a fiery furnace. Jesus said that? Yeah, Jesus said that. He says in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus said, I am the way. The truth and life and no one comes to the father but by me and paul was a man that lived his life like jesus was serious when he said those words here's the deal far too many christians live their life like jesus is playing a game i remember i I was real little my mom's gonna be in the next service so she's gonna be tickled i'm using her in in a sermon but when i was little she'd say hey you need to do this and if you don't do this there was some punishment coming and then I would say something smart, Alec, like, like little kids do. And my mom would say this. She'd say, hide and watch. You know what that means? That means all oh, that's going to happen. And you better be ready when that happens. So many people think that Jesus is playing a game, but I don't think Jesus is playing. Jesus is like, I said what I said, and you hide and watch. I don't think Jesus to my mom. But, you know, and that's kind of what's going on here. Hide and watch if that's not going to happen. Here's the deal. Words are cheap. Actions are what matter. Keep reading verse 7 of Acts 21. When we had finished the the voyage from Tyre, we went to Ptolemas, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the evangelist who was one of the seven and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied, and while we were staying there, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people urged him not to go to Jerusalem. And Paul answered, What are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart, for I am ready not only to be in prison, but to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus and since he would not be persuaded we ceased and said let the will of the lord be done. The Apostle Paul knew what was coming to him. He he knew. So so here's a question. Who wants to know the will of God for our life? Anybody want to know that? Yeah, we got, got I want to know, right? You know, you guys are young. You still ask those questions, right? But there's something that happens when you get older, you kind of stop doing that. Right? yeah remember when you're younger and i think some of us i gotta think way back you're thinking well who should i marry where should i go to school should i buy a house should i rent should i work there should i work there should i have two kids should we have three kids remember back when you used to answer those questions ask those questions we're all like yeah i used to but then we get older and more set in our ways and we stop asking those questions you want to know what god's will for your life is it's found in the bible it's found in the word of God. If you want to know what God wants for your life, read your Bible. Let me give you an example. Crystal clear what God wants for our life. Found in 1 Peter chapter four, nineteen. It says, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. You know what God's will for our life is? That we'll do good while we're suffering. Suffering is part of the Christian life. That's probably not a verse you're gonna hear preached in a lot of so-called Christian churches, right? We're just gonna skip that, that chapter in Peter. God's plan for our life is opposition. God's plan for our life is persecution. Suffering is part of God's will for Paul's life. Okay? And suffering's part of God's will for our life too. Just we need to be reminded that there's gonna come a day where all that suffering's over. It's all gone, and believers, we're gonna be in the very presence of the Lord. And so a bulk of this this message, I want to talk about suffering today. I want to talk about it in the context of Acts chapter 21. Because if we were to back up in the previous chapter, Paul's friends just told him, don't go to Jerusalem. Bad things are going to happen. You know, it doesn't take a prophet to really know, because that's just wise. It doesn't take a rocket science to know what's going to happen. The writing is on the wall. So I want to talk a lot today about evil suffering that, that we experience in, in our world today did you know that the existence of evil is the number one reason why unbelievers list for not believing in God that's that's number one and over and over and over again people say because there's evil because there's suffering you know what that means there's no God let's be honest some of us may have even thought that if we're being honest maybe you heard it and sometimes it happens and people ask well if God is real well, why is this thing happening? And that's a tough thing to answer. When somebody's right in the midst of suffering, that is a really hard answer to, to give. But you know, hopefully the rest of this message will it'll better equip us for when those times come into someone's life. Here's point number one for us. Point number one, God is not the creator of evil and suffering. God's not the creator of evil and suffering. All the time people ask, well, why didn't God create a world that, was, that had no evil in it? Why didn't he do that? The answer is he did. He did. In Genesis, it says God created the world and it was good. So then where did evil come from? Well, the Bible says that, that Adam and Eve and all of mankind really, God created them and he created them with free will. He created them with free will so they could express their love for him and also for one another. If we turn back to Genesis, it says that Adam walked with God in the coolness in the morning. Think about that. Think about walking around your backyard with God. How awesome was that? That's what Adam had. Adam had direct fellowship with with God. And God said, you know what, Adam? You can do anything you want. Do anything but this one thing. There's just one thing you can't do. And we know what happened. We know how he used his freedom. he, He did not choose to love. He did not choose to obey. Both him, Adam and Eve, they chose disobedience. So I hope you know that it's impossible to truly love unless there's a choice. God gave them a choice. Love is a choice. Love is valuable to God. And you can't really love unless you have a choice to love or you have a choice not to love. And so God gave Adam and Eve a choice, and they chose poorly. God gave us the ability to choose, and unfortunately, we, we choose to bring about evil. Now, God did create the potential for evil to enter the world, and that, that's the only way He could create the potential for genuine love. It was human beings, in our free will, that we brought this potential of evil into a reality. Read in James chapter 1, verse 13. James says, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. He himself tempts no one. See, God is holy. God is good. God cannot sin. Well, there's nothing God can't do. Not true. God can't sin. God did not create evil. God did not create suffering or death. That's our final enemy. God did not create that. And some people say, well, if God's so powerful, why doesn't he just put an end to Satan? Why doesn't he do that? Here's my answer to that. He's going to. There's going to come a day where there's no more Satan. That day just hasn't happened yet. If you turn towards the end of your Bible, the book of Revelation, scroll through all the way to chapter 20, you'd read about it. Satan's going to be defeated for the last time. The devil's gonna be cast into a lake of fire and he's gonna burn there for all eternity. And you're thinking, why does he need to do that now? Here's my answer I don't know. Seems like a good time to me, but clearly it's not because he hasn't done it. You know, all the times I'll be driving in my car and my kids ask that question. You know the question's about to happen. Are we there yet? No, we're not there yet, but that doesn't mean we're not gonna get there, right? Well, guess what? We're gonna get there, we're gonna get to heaven. Satan's not going to be there. He's going to be the lake and fire. We're getting there now. We're just not there yet. Here's point number two. Point number two, God knows everything that will happen. Okay? That that means God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. He knows the beginning from the end. He knows it all. That means Paul's life, God knew every twist, and God knew every turn that would happen. God knew every time Paul would put, be put in prison. God knew every time that a punch would be thrown at the Apostle Paul. God knew every time that a rock would smack the Apostle Paul in the head. God knew every drop that would pour from Paul's face. And God knows every time it happens in our life too. God knows every time that the phone rings in the dark of the night and there's someone on the other end of that phone that has news that nobody wants to ha- hear. God knows every time that a doctor sits across us in a, in a room and delivers a diagnosis of cancer, God knows. God knows every time that we're wronged by somebody in this life, God knows it all. But there's never a time when, when God says, well, What? Oh, I, I had no idea. Maybe I have to go with plan B. God has never said that. God is never surprised, and God is always in control. Because God is timeless, He is not limited by time and space like we are, and He knows the past, the present, the future all at the same time. So, God is not linear. I think I think it was, was it two weeks ago that that uh, Lieutenant Krogman's um, hearse came through. I was standing right out here, right outside the the, this, the steps, and I'm I'm out there. I'm waiting, and it sounds feels like I'm out there forever. I was probably only there for like thirty minutes, and I had somebody in the, in the funeral procession that gave me very good, very good uh, information when we were going to be there. But I didn't know exactly. I didn't know the exact second. But I'm waiting and I'm waiting. All of a sudden, I, I see the first car turn the, the corner right there at 10th and Bighorn. But I still, at that moment, I, where's the hearst? I don't know. Where's he in the procession? I don't But then all of a sudden, there's the hearse. I, I see Lieutenant Krogman's car. Well, then I'm like, well, how long is this procession going to be? I, I still don't know. You know, if I was in a blimp... I'd have a totally different perspective, right? I'd be able to know all those things. We need, what I needed was a different vantage point. That's exactly what God has on us. His perspective is so much bigger than our perspective. And then God can take the worst experience in our life, and he knows how it's going to end in the very end. We don't, we don't like it while, while we're going through it, but this is what we need to be reminded. God knows. God knows. God knows rest in the fact that God knows. Here's the third point this morning. Point number three, God allows suffering in our life. You see, this is what we need to know. God has a perfect will and God has a permissive will. And that permissive will, it is filtered through the very hands of God. And that's why we need to be so thankful that our God is good and he's, a, he, he's our father. You know, this is clearly seen in, in the story of Job. You know the story of Job? Job had it all, and he lost it all. One day things are rolling for Job, and the next day everything comes crashing down. God allowed Satan to take everything away from Job. And sometimes we can't see the hand of God, but you know what we have to do? We have to trust the hand of God. Because when suffering rolls into our life or crashes onto our beach, what's our typical response? Typical response is, why, God? Why? Why me? Why now? Why is our first reaction, why? Well, the answer is because we don't know. We don't know the answers why this trial is showing up on our our doorstep. And even though it's unknown to us, just know it's known to God. You know, if we're not focusing on the why, there's some that don't focus on the why. If that's not you, then you focus on the duration of the why. Right? How long, God? Are you going to allow this in my life? That's what we ask. Here's what we need to do. When we, when we don't know the why, and we don't know the duration of the why, we need to focus on what we know, and not on what we don't know. Because here's what we know. God is good. We know that. We know God is faithful. We know God is loving. We know God is kind. God is generous. And here's one thing. Know this. God is always in control. So we just need to leave the whys to the God of the universe. You know, in the book of Genesis, there was a man named Jacob, and Jacob had a bunch of boys, and if you don't know this story, these boys are not exactly squeaky clean church boys, okay? I'm going to say it like that, and Jacob wasn't exactly a model dad either. Well, Jacob had a favorite son, Joseph. You're not supposed to have a favorite son, but he clearly had a favorite son, and his brothers knew it. So what they did is they grabbed Joseph, and they threw him in a pit. They took his coat. They faked his death and told their dad that, hey, some wild animals ate Joseph. And they sold him into slavery. There were some guys passing by at that time, and, and they, they sold him to him. God knew those guys were going to be passing by at that exact moment. And Joseph's taken to Egypt, and eventually he, he becomes the right-hand man for the second most powerful man in all of Egypt. Things are going great until that man's wife falsely accused him of rape. God knew that was going to happen. And then he's thrown into prison, and then it's found out he can interpret dreams after a long period of time. You're getting the cliff note version here. Um, he gets out, and he interprets a dream for Pharaoh, and then he becomes the second most powerful man in, in all of Egypt. And eventually a famine comes. His brothers come, and he, they've got to get, a, get some food from their brothers, and then some more time goes by, and eventually he reveals himself to his brothers, and they are terrified. They're like, our brother's going to kill us for what we did. I would say rightfully so. And then Joseph says that famous line, he says, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. You know, what they did was evil, but more than 20 years later, 20 years, God used it for good. You know, sometimes God waits for decades to take that terrible thing and change it for good. But that brings me to my fourth point, point number four. There are some things in life that we'll never understand. We need to know that there some things in life that we will never understand. Read Deuteronomy chapter 29, 29. And if you like to underline verses in your book, this is a good one. Have it circled and highlighted. Have it marked. This is a good one to go to when these things happen. It says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. That we may do all the words of the law. You know, sometimes this life, it just doesn't doesn't make sense because there's people that sin against us and there's bad circumstances that happen and sometimes we know why. And sometimes we don't know why, right? There are the secret things that belong to God. The Bible tells us that His ways are not our ways. His His thinking is, is greater than our thinking. God has a perspective bigger than ours. Anybody ever had trials in their life? I know we're all asking, we're answering yes. Maybe you went through a divorce you rather would not have gone through. Or maybe you lost a job when you never should have lost that job. Or, or maybe you've lost a loved one that was totally unexpected. And there's some things that we're never going to get an answer to this side of heaven. And I have to be honest, I, I'm not 100% certain we're going to get all the answers on the other side of heaven either. Sometimes we're sinned against and we want to know Why? And we need to know that God has a perspective that, that we simply don't have. You know, in the game of football, who has the best point of view on what's happening in the action on the field? Someone say, oh, it's the refs. Well, it can't be the refs. That's why you need seven refs in an NFL game. It's not the players. It's not even the head coach. The person that has the best view is the guy that's way up in the skybox, the assistant coach, with the binoculars that zoom in and watch every single aspect of the game. That's who has the the best perspective and that's god god has a perspective on our suffering that we simply don't have so ask yourself this do you have a bottom up or a top-down perspective on life because a bottom up perspective it looks at the trials and suffering and says why god why me why are you doing this Why are you allowing the suffering in my life? Why are you not stopping this trial that I'm going through? If you love me, God, you would stop it. Why don't you do something about my pain, God? Do you even know what you're doing? Be honest. We've all been there. Sometimes we think, don't think like that. But a top-down perspective it, it looks at troubles and says, you know what, God, you're in control. You're never going to leave me. You're never going to forsake me. And God, you allowed these trials in my life for a reason. God, I'm going to take your hand. And I don't understand what's going going on, but I'm going to walk with you. I love you, and I know that you love me. There was a pastor by the name of Tim Keller. He said this. I want to put his... his, I don't usually put quotes up on the board, but I thought this was so good. Um, Tim Keller said, if you have a God that is great enough for you to be mad at for not stopping the suffering, then you have a God who is great enough to have a perspective on your suffering that you don't have. I thought that was so good. If you have a God that, to be mad at for not stopping the, what, what you're going through, then you need to recognize that God is big enough to see what you don't see. And God is big enough to not know what you don't know. And here's something else you need to know. God uses every type of suffering, every type of storm for our good and for his glory. Read point I'm gonna share with you. Here's point number five. There's no such thing as meaningless suffering. Cancer, it's not meaningless. That missed job opportunity, it's not meaningless. Financial bankruptcy, not meaningless. The loss of someone that you love more than life itself, it's not meaningless. That person's life, no matter how short it was, that person's life is not meaningless. And sometimes we can't explain why it's happening. But every suffering, every setback, every trial, it has meaning. Here's one one purpose for our suffering. Read 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3 and 4. The word of God said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all mercies, and the God of all comfort who comforts us in all of our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort in which we ourselves are comforted by. The apostle Paul, when he wrote that, he said, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. You see, God allows suffering in a believer's life so we'll take what what we've been comforted with and then God will work through us in somebody else's life that's going through that exact same situation you're going through, gone through. You see, God shapes us through suffering. And then God says, hey, you know what I want you to do? That terrible, awful situation that you went through that you'd rather not have gone through. Take that to the other person that's over there suffering. Just put your arm around them and help them cry. And when they're ready, tell them your story. And how I walked you through that whole thing. God says, you know, don't waste your hurt. Use it. So don't waste your sufferings. Extend the the comfort that God gave us to others. And there's times when we don't want to be vulnerable. Let's be honest. There's times we don't want to do that. We, we don't want to be real. We don't want to be transparent. Don't do that. Okay? Use what you're going through to help somebody else. So hopefully that changes our, our earthly view of suffering. Here's point number six. This is our last point for this morning. Point six. Our earthly suffering, it pales in comparison to our eternal home. Read 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17. Paul says, For this light, momentary affliction is prepared for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. You know, if we're being honest, that trial that we're going through, it doesn't seem light. It doesn't seem momentary, right? Any amens? That's a good time to give your pastor an amen right there. Because we don't know why What's but the wise behind our trials? Can, can we get, or if we get hung up on the duration. But I want you to consider this. This life is just a dress rehearsal for the big show. It really is. This life we're going through that we're banking everything on, some of us, it, it's just, it's just practice. It's not even the big game. Everything that we're going through in this life, it's getting us ready for heaven. The tribulations... That we're facing now, Jesus is using and allowing our lives to prepare us for eternity with him. Read Romans chapter 8, verse 18. The word of God says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present age not worthy comparing the glory that is to be revealed to us. You see, God wants us to have a long view, perspective on our suffering. Do you remember what I said earlier? I said, don't focus on what you don't know, focus on what you know. Keep your eyes on the who. That's Jesus. Stay in love with Jesus and run the race until you get to heaven. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. It says, but as it is written, no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, no heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love Him. You know, heaven is prepared for you. So if you love God, if, if you're a believer, if you're saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, then here's what's going to happen. The best is still yet to come. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, then you're going to miss out. You're going to miss heaven. You know, people all the time, they ask, where was God when this awful thing happened in my life? I'll tell you exactly where God was at. He was at the exact same place when His Son went to the cross. God the Father was on the throne when God the Son was being lashed by evil men. And God was on his throne when those same evil men, they took his son and they stretched out his hands on a wooden cross and they drove nails through his hands and his wrists. Left him naked, exposed for the entire world to see. God the Father was on the throne when God the Son was paying for the sins of mankind. And then he was buried in a rich man's tomb. But on the third day he rose again, right? So if you don't know Jesus Christ, your Savior, I beg you, do that today. Invite Jesus Christ into your life. Give Him your, your life. He'll forgive you your sins. You give your life to Him. And then commit to live your life for Him for all eternity. Why would He do that? Because we're sinners. We are sinners at our very core. There's nothing good in us. But yet, while we're still, still sinners, Christ came and He died for you and me. And the Bible says, whoever calls in the name of the Lord, they will be saved. So that I, I try to give people the opportunity, every single message, to call in the name of the Lord. And for most, it's through a prayer. When I got saved, I don't remember my prayer. But it was something along the lines of, save me, God. I'm a sinner. It was something along the lines. And if you have never prayed anything like that, I would beg you to do that now. Say, dear Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. And I need to be saved. You're the only one that can save me. I give you my life. I pray this in your name. Amen.